Hello everyone, um, welcome back to Runaway Eve. I just want to say a huge resounding thanks um, to those of you who listened to my very first episode. The reaction and response that I got was just overwhelming and I'm so glad that the words that I shared resonated with so many people. Um, I cannot thank you enough and I hope you enjoy today's episode as much as you enjoyed the last one. So let's get to it. The other day I saw a post on Instagram that posed the question, what is one teaching from a former religion or worldview that you still believe deeply despite having moved on? The very first thing that came to mind when I read that, possibly because I was admittedly having a pretty rough morning, wasn't so much a teaching as a mindset. When things don't go the way I want them to, I still attribute it to just not being part of God's plan for me. When I don't get what I want, it's because God must have something better planned for me. I don't even know if I believe in the same version of God that I used to, but this is definitely still something that I sort of cling to when things don't go the way that I think they should. And I've heard it a million times throughout my life. From losing a pivotal softball game to experiencing my first breakup, from not getting into my first choice college, UCLA, (laughs) to not getting an interview for that job I really wanted. I heard it when I was sick. I heard it when I was in mourning, when I was angry, and truthfully, it was always kind of comforting. In fact, I think that's why it's so hard to let that mindset go. It's comforting when bad things happen to believe that it's only because something inconceivably better will happen eventually. But what happens when this mindset prevents you from grieving? prevents you from feeling the anger, the sadness, the fear, the frustration, or prevents you from actually dealing with the situation and then actually moving on. So, as I'm sure you can gather from what I've already been saying, today I really want to talk about the way that evangelical culture uses God as a coping mechanism and as a substitute for the genuine support every human needs and deserves. I want to talk about how this mindset allows those in the culture to put on the facade of caring while keeping the pain of others, and even themselves, at an arm's length. This mindset really ties into the thoughts and prayers phenomenon, but why do people in the culture do this? Why do they make shallow, unhelpful, albeit comforting statements instead of actually providing tangible support? Why do they soothe themselves this way? In this episode, I want to explore these questions, and I'm going to be completely honest, as I was preparing for this episode and drafting my script, I kept switching back and forth between using they and them and me and us and we, Um, so I'm just going to put that out there right now and say that this is something that I still struggle with. It's something that I, to an extent, I'm still a part of. Um, And I want to be honest about that. It's a struggle and it's something that I want to explore, which is why I'm talking about it today. The idea of using God as a coping mechanism is not something unique to evangelical culture and is something that has been studied by scholars quite a bit. There is a ton of peer-reviewed research out there on the ways that religious people rely on their beliefs and their chosen higher power to deal with the hard shit they encounter. On the other end of the spectrum, on Reddit, for example, you can comb through post after post on how a coping mechanism is really all that religion is. For the sake of this episode, I want to focus on the evangelical Christian idea of God, 
and how the beliefs of those in the culture serve as a way of dealing with trauma and as a means to comfort without actually having to do the work of comforting. We'll round out the episode by briefly touching on the good old thoughts and prayers sentiment. So let's start by talking about how God is used as a way of dealing with trauma. I want to start by making it very clear that I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with turning to religion to help deal with trauma. In fact, I recognize that many people do this automatically and unconsciously. If we believe in a higher power, it's almost second nature to reckon with that higher power when bad things happen. When we're told our whole lives that God is in control, it's understandable that we would question that God when bad things happen. It's human nature to try to make meaning and look for the bigger picture when we're dealing with something traumatic or stressful. I think the root of this behavior is the idea of God's will, something that is ingrained in evangelicalism. To get an idea of just how adherent to God's will evangelicals are, you'd really just need to spend 30 seconds on the Gospel Coalition website, which I did for the sake of this episode. In an article titled, God's Will for Your Life is More Obvious Than You Think, author Courtney Doctor states the following, As we seek to know God's will, we often feel tension. In a sincere desire to please him, we can sometimes walk in fear that we will make the wrong choice about the details of our lives. We spin in circles, wondering where God wants us to get coffee, or how much he wants us to spend on groceries, or whether he'd be happy if we went to Disney for a vacation. Every choice becomes a paralyzing decision. Either discover what God wants, or make a choice that could ruin everything. For some, obsessing over life's details leads them to make decisions in clearly unbiblical ways, hinging their choices on apparent signs and coincidences. Others swing to the opposite end, thinking God doesn't really care about the details of our lives and doesn't have a will for anything we do. We can also assume God's will applies only to certain aspects of life, whom we marry or what job we take, perhaps. But outside of those big things, we can basically believe we control the moments of our days. On the surface, the idea of God's will seems so simple and so self-explanatory, but this article complicates things, no? Regardless of which one of these three tropes a person in the culture takes on, The underlying threat is that God is, without a doubt, in control. Maybe only of some things, but God is definitely in control. And when things don't go our way, it's because God has a plan. And I don't want to get too hung up on this whole God's will thing. I mean, we could have a discussion just on which aspects of our lives are maybe predestined and which things we control ourselves. It's not really the point here. But I do think it's important to point out the fact that this idea of of God's will, of God being in charge, um, is sort of the driving force behind the evangelical tendency to rely on, oh, that's God's plan for you when bad things happen. (laughs) I don't know why my mocking evangelical voice is so angelic. I guess it's kind of of perfect. Uh, But anyway... Let's talk about trauma and how people in evangelical Christian culture rely on God and their religion and their beliefs as a way of coping with trauma. I want to focus on an article by Paul Maxwell called Trauma is Not a Life Sentence, which I discovered in my research and stood out to me because I both love and hate it. 
This article basically explains trauma from a biblical perspective, and the bulk of it is a list of what the author calls five gifts from God to the traumatized. Paul sets his article up with a really great point that too often amongst evangelicals, trauma is approached one of two ways, either with a false sense of give it to God optimism or an almost obsessive penance-like fixation on the trauma itself. Paul states, Some Christians have been trained to think that proper believers will not continue to experience traumatic symptoms for the rest of their lives because of Christ's liberating work. On the other hand, hope and freedom are withheld by other well-meaning Christian counselors who insist on our, quote, need to process, the need to focus exclusively on our trauma, the need to speak at length about the pain, the need to obsess over it, the need to become preoccupied with our wounds, the notion that only in giving ourselves over to our trauma can we be free from it. One is cruel optimism, the other is an incurable diagnosis. Both are forms of false witness. And I hear him. I can see this. I have seen it. Frankly, I've seen more of the first kind in my own experience, but I have experienced both of these attitudes. However, he has a very black and white way of saying these supposed two ways the majority of Christians, in his own experience, handle trauma. Or, more specifically, in the way he's written this article, this is the way Christians handle the trauma of others. And I have a bit of an issue with this really black and white way of seeing things, um, which really comes into play in the next section of his essay. Paul's list, the five gifts from God to the traumatized, is quite a lot to take in. On the surface, I'll admit, it's a beautiful list. Even as someone removed from the culture, reading the words Paul has written filled me with comfort. At first, let's briefly go over the five gifts. The first is that God remembers evil. And this is basically just the idea that we shouldn't hide our trauma, we shouldn't hide the things that hurt us and cause us pain, especially from God. And Paul states that trauma is mitigated, first of all, by calling that which is evil, evil, and that which is devastating trauma. Its effects are only able to be survived and minimized when the whole tragedy has first come into view. And I absolutely agree with this statement from the perspective of somebody who is going through their own healing plan to name and deal with their own trauma, I wholeheartedly agree with the fact that you can't do that until you openly admit that, first and foremost, that you have experienced trauma, but you can't do that until you've named that trauma and and just sort of recognized it for what it is and accepted that you've gone through something traumatizing. Paul continues... The past will not be whitewashed for the sake of protecting the privileged. The men or women, the kings, the powerful, the institutional leaders, all those who abused power for their own personal gain, all evil acts will be properly labeled as evil and remembered as the perpetuation of trauma. And I think that is such a beautiful statement. I wish I believed it. I wish that I had an experience with evangelical culture that adhered to that statement or upheld that statement. Um, So I think this is really where Paul lost me. (laughs) I read over the list, the headings, and thought, wow, that's nice. And then I started reading into them, and I just don't understand where he's coming from. But let's keep going. Paul's second so-called gift to those dealing with trauma 
is that God tells stories of trauma that would be easier to forget. I think the best way to explain this one is to just read his first paragraph under this heading. So he states, glossing over the darkness for the sake of a redemptive story only perpetuates trauma. Calling the smallest signs of functionality, quote, healing and quote, progress can actually undercut real healing and progress by minimizing pain and loss. The process of recovery is not typically immediate. Accurate self-assessment and self-honesty, as much as it is possible, is what places us within God's true story about us, not trying to contrive redemptive emotions and improvement before they truly come. And I'll be honest, when I first read this, I was like, yeah, but then I read it again and my response was much different. I'm not really sure what he's trying to get at here, but it feels very much like we shouldn't celebrate small victories when we're in the middle of a healing journey because it undercuts the experience of our pain. He goes on in this section to mention various narratives that come out of the Old Testament. And he, he literally says, these are ugly, awful stories about traumatic experiences among God's faithful ones. And I don't want to get into it too much because it's not the point of this episode. But within evangelical Christianity, there is this sort of underlying current of Christians suffering and Christians being tested. There are a lot of Bible stories about supposedly faithful people being tested by God. And I, I very much get that vibe from this section, which I really, really don't like and don't agree with. And I don't know, maybe that wasn't his intention here, but it sure seems like it when you're suggesting that, quote, the smallest signs of functionality shouldn't be considered progress because your trauma serves some purpose for storytelling. And I don't know, maybe I'm taking this way too literally. Um, I, I, I think I can see part of where Paul is coming from. And I do agree with his point that you shouldn't feel like you have to hide your trauma. But I'm wondering where his insistence on being very real and raw with the trauma you're facing is coming from. Because again, in my experience, these things were always hidden. I, I never felt encouraged to share what was going on in my life. I never felt like I was in a safe enough space to talk about the trauma I had undergone or, or even, just, even just the things I was dealing with. Um, I, I never felt safe enough to do that. So I, would, I, I really just don't, don't really know where this is coming from beyond these Bible stories he's mentioned and just this this idea of, you know, God gives us trials and God helps us through those trials. And once we've gone through them, um, they're part of our story and we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Certainly, certainly. I agree with that. That's fine. Um, I just, I, I don't see where this actual process um, fits in with the culture because I've never seen it lived out in my experience in evangelical Christian culture. Next on the list is simply that God speaks specifically to the depths of our suffering. And I actually think this is really beautiful. And I think that this is 
compared to some of the other things that I have talked about and will talk about in this episode, I think this is uh, a great reason for why some people choose to turn to God or religion to cope with trauma. Here, Paul speaks specifically about how different parts of the Bible are written, how parts of the Bible are poetry, and parts are deeply, deeply sad. The Book of Lamentations, for example, just speak of such sorrow in such a beautiful and relatable way. He talks about how honest parts of the Bible are written and how just that can speak to us and that can meet us in our deepest depths in a way that not a lot else can. If you are in the culture and you believe in a higher power, in this case specifically, if you believe in the Christian God and you read the Christian Bible, these sections of the Bible are going to speak to you in a really, really meaningful way. So I can't really argue with him on this one. This is definitely a gift. Number four though, I don't even really wanna talk about to be completely honest. Um, Number four is God gives us himself even in the midst of triggers and frankly there's not much nuance here. Paul very very briefly and very loosely defines what a trigger is and then goes on to give us a bunch of Bible verses that we should turn to when we feel triggered. Um, That's pretty much it. I'm this this is the definition of using God religion in this case specifically the Bible as a coping mechanism. And I'm here questioning that, not necessarily as a proponent of that. So there's really not much else for me to say. Um, Basically, this gift is that God is there and we should trust God through our triggers. Paul's last gift is that God gives us permission to feel with faith. And I think what he's getting at here is that when somebody who experiences life through the Christian worldview faces trauma, it also causes them to reckon with their religion and their religious beliefs and their God. As I was reading this section, I couldn't help but think about a college philosophy course I took in which we battled all term with the age-old question about whether or not a God who claims to be benevolent can also claim to be all-powerful. Paul acknowledges that processing trauma is harder when you're also processing aspects of your faith but that God acknowledges this and allows for this and gives us ways to process all of this um, through the Bible. And with that, I need to just say that even amongst the beauty and comfort I see in his words, Paul's list is essentially a guide to how to use the Christian God to cope with trauma, how to use the Bible, how to use these random verses he's dropped um, to cope with your trauma. He says the following towards the end of his article, Too much ministry to victims of abuse amounts to little more than wand-waving over secular group therapy. The church will never be the perfect place in this age. The church may never be as informed as the trauma clinic, as trained and specialized as the therapist, as warm as the childhood friend, or in some cases it could be all of the above. There is no such thing as a perfect community. Not yet. Resist requiring that standard from others or, as the church, pretending to meet it. So in the same breath, he tells the people reading his essay, presumably fellow Christians, not to expect those things from their church community, but he also says to the church not to try to be those things. Perfect community? No. Perfect treatment plan? Certainly not. 
But research-backed, individualized treatment plan administered by a certified professional? Yeah, that's something that exists. It really bothers me that the only time professional help is mentioned in this entire article is when it's pointed at as something that isn't quite good enough, or something problematic even. I think that's really dangerous. I think too many churches try to do the counseling themselves, and too many churches guide trauma victims away from real help. Not all. I'm not saying all churches do this. Hell, when I was in high school, I saw a certified therapist who happened to be Christian faith-based. Um, Christian doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, etc. exist, and some churches don't shy away from helping their followers find treatment that will actually work for them. But that really just begs the question, though, why do so many people and so many churches within evangelical culture shun therapy? There are probably answers to that question. In fact, I know there are, but that is research that is way outside the scope of this episode and, quite frankly, my comfort level. Maybe we'll talk about it some other day. But for now, I want to take an opportunity to address the elephant in the room. Uh, This will no doubt be its own episode or multiple episodes later down the line, but I can't just not mention the overwhelming research and personal anecdotes out there on the ways religious experiences themselves have caused trauma. Um, In fact, as I was researching for this episode, an alarming but almost invisible pattern emerged of religion causing the trauma and then being the supposed solution to said trauma. I've been caught in that cycle. I think we all have. In fact, my personal experiences and the experiences of some of my friends in that cycle is how and why this podcast came to be. On a small scale, that cycle looks like being told by the church that you're a sinner, but that the only way to absolve that sin is to become more involved with the church. We're called to love and blindly follow a God who, if you adhere to the origin story, had his only son murdered because of us. Yeah, I had a realization the other day that God didn't save us from damnation. No, God saved us from his own wrath. Wouldn't it have been easier to just not be wrathful? But I digress. All this to say that religion itself can be, and in many cases is, traumatic. When you're stuck in the Christian bubble and are relying on your faith as your only way to cope, you're putting yourself in danger. But let's move on, because next I want to talk about God as a means to comfort without actually having to comfort. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on Facebook the other day. I was on the profile of someone from the church I grew up in, someone I haven't spoken to in over a decade, but who I still think about occasionally, for various reasons. I noticed that she had been tagged in a post, one of those rambling, barely coherent posts where dozens of people are tagged that radiate secondhand embarrassment. The post was written by someone, clearly distraught, who was talking about the behavioral and mental health issues of their young child. The person's words were laced with a fear I cannot even fathom because I'm not a parent. A fear of not only what might happen to their unruly, clearly troubled child, but slightly harder to pick up but definitely there was a fear of their child. The person closed their post with six words we've all uttered probably many times throughout our lives. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, those words hanging heavy with the weight of consequences that I, again, can't even begin to fathom. To my surprise, the post had multiple comments, many people responding to offer this person their support. And I do use the word support very loosely because every single comment was a riff on sending you prayers. 
no links to resources, no phone numbers for mental health professionals, hell, no offers to babysit and give this person an hour of solace, just prayers. This interaction that I was voyeuristically and accidentally privy to has stuck with me. I worry for that person that I don't even know. I worry for their child. I wish I knew them and could provide some sort of assistance, within my reasonable ability and general knowledge, of course. I believe comforting each other in this way should be rooted in community building. It should come from sharing resources and providing tangible support. The church should be a bastion of this. And I'm not talking about yearly canned food drives or serving lunch to those in need on Thanksgiving. Those activities are admirable and important, but the community building I'm talking about goes so far beyond performative, once-in-a-while actions. The support and comfort I'm talking about is something that should happen whenever it's needed, by anybody in the community. And define community however you want. Here I'm talking about the evangelical church, of course. But to help contextualize, I've always felt more supported by my friend group than by the church I grew up in. And now, as an adult, I feel more supported by the church my parents are a part of, that I attend every so often when I happen to be visiting, than I ever did by the church I grew up in. And I have seen churches support their people. I've witnessed it, and when it happens, it's beautiful. I know friends and I have family members who have been so comforted by their church families in times of need, and that's what I want to see more of. Because that's truly coping. That is coping together as a community. That is helping each other through our trauma. And that's what's going to provide real healing, whether it's based in religion or not. But then again, what I witnessed was a group of people from the church I grew up in choosing to support one of their own through dealing with a troubled child they were literally scared of with thoughts and prayers. And I don't want to rely on the assumption that none of those people are providing tangible support behind the scenes to make my point. Maybe they are. I mean, I was just expressing my issues with performative actions. Any real help given in times of struggle is, frankly, beside the point here. Speaking as someone who grew up in the culture and is still trying to break this habit, why is it when someone we care about or a member of our community is struggling, that prayer or the reminder that God loves you or God is in control, the first and sometimes the only thing we offer? Why do we tend to rely on prayer or either of these statements when we ourselves are dealing with trauma, stress, bad news, or anything else that makes us feel anything short of content? And in my research for this episode, I actually found a fascinating document that addresses just this. Nicole Cornell wrote a thesis titled Factors Influencing the Likelihood of Using Religion as a Coping Mechanism in Response to Life Event Stressors. What a title. And conducted a corresponding study. Nicole proposes that there are three main factors that contribute to a person's reliance on religion as a coping mechanism. In short, these are the individual's level of something she refers to as religious capital, the pre-existence of chronic stress, and access to alternative resources and coping methods. And I will explain those in a little more depth shortly. The dependent variable of her study, or in other words, the means through which she would measure the presence of her three main factors, is something she has labeled religious coping. She defines religious coping as, quote, the extent to which an individual seeks health and healing information from sacred scriptures, as well as the frequency of their prayer, 
And to be clear, I'm trying to put this in layman's terms here. It has been a while since I had my last research methods class. I also want to make a point to clarify that she's not just talking about Christianity. She's um, speaking about religion in a very broad and general sense. So it's not just about evangelicalism in her study. That being said, I want to point out that the scope of her study is extremely narrow. While her three factors could be prescribed pretty broadly across a wide range of experiences, she defines them in really narrow, specific ways. And let me take a moment to actually explain to you what these factors are. So first, religious capital is the culmination of a person's investment and engagement in their faith practices, both internal and external. She refers to these as social support resources, or the way a person interacts externally with their religious practices, and intrapersonal resources, or a person's religious beliefs and concept of God. In short, Nicole explains that religious capital can be measured in terms of religious service attendance, an individual's view of God, and their own degree of religiosity. Nicole's definition of life stressors for the sake of this study is extremely narrow. She focuses on health, age, and financial security, and hypothesizes right in her definition that, quote, poor health, increasing age, and stress resulting from concerns about family finances can be stressors that underlie and catalyze the use of religious coping when a life event stressor does present itself. She states that her third factor, alternative methods and resources, quote, includes such things as access to advanced medical procedures or knowledge of other effective treatments or coping mechanisms. And that's pretty straightforward. She goes on, however, to connect access to alternative resources and methods to a higher socioeconomic status. She states that things like education and income both attribute to a higher SES and also make alternative resources and methods more accessible. It's a really interesting point, although I would argue that there are so many more factors than just SES that go into whether or not a person seeks out alternative coping methods, but more on that later. I want to say that Nicole's study could very easily be a jumping off point for so many other really important in-depth conversations, so I'm going to do my best to keep my comments as on-topic as possible. Now, I don't want to get into the details of her methods and her process, but I do want to look at the results of the study, and of course, I do have feelings. The conclusion of Nicole's study states, First, religious capital plays arguably the most influential role in determining whether an individual uses religious coping. The three measures of religious capital used in this study sought to collect the social support effects of religion as well as its function as an intrapersonal resource. Collectively, the greater the religious capital of an individual, the more likely they are to use religious coping. And this, to me, is not a surprising outcome in a study like this. The more invested and integrated in your religious practices that you are, of course that's going to be a bigger part of your life and it's going to be something that you tend to rely on. Remember that Nicole defined religious capital as both your personal beliefs and feelings regarding your religion and also the way you sort of interact with your religion, the sort of social structure that you're a part of because of your religion or the engagement that you have with different physical practices of your religion. So if you're more involved with those things and more sort of in tune with your beliefs, 
Of course, you're going to rely on religion as a coping mechanism. It just makes sense. And I'm not making any sort of judgment call here. I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing necessarily, because again, this study is pretty broad in the beliefs that they're looking at. Um, it's not necessarily about evangelicals, and that's my religious experience, and I don't want to make assumptions about any other religions that I don't and have never practiced. As for the effect of stress on religion as a coping mechanism, Nicole states, the data of this study suggests that those who have greater chronic strains are not more likely to use religious coping. An individual's subjective poorness of health was only statistically significant when it came to measuring use of scripture to learn about health or healing, and it had a negative correlation, that is, as health became poorer, people were actually less likely to turn to religious coping. And this to me is fascinating, and I wish there was more to look at here. These results are complicated, and I don't think they were necessarily what Nicole hypothesized. She does go on to say that the results can be further complicated by looking at another part of the study, in which those who said their health was poor also reported using religious coping to the greatest extent, followed by those who said their health was excellent, which is very conflicting. She states, this could be the product of the combination of those who are in the poorest health being most likely to use religious coping, but those who are of better health conditions seeking the counsel of religion for purposes other than coping, which wouldn't be accounted for in this study. But perhaps most interesting are the findings about Nicole's third factor, access to resources and coping mechanisms beyond religious beliefs and practices. The study found that, as far as access to alternative methods and resources, it was hypothesized that the higher one's income or education is, thus a measure of higher socioeconomic status, the less likely he or she was to use religious coping. Though none of the values in this category were found to be statistically significant, they all had a negative coefficient in that, as they increased, the likelihood of using religious coping decreased. However, Definite support for this study's theoretical model cannot be ascertained from these results. And like, yeah, I mean, I'm not the one doing the study, but I would have defined this factor differently. To me, a person's willingness to or insistence on relying on religion to cope doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their socioeconomic status. I get why that came into play in Nicole's definition, because, unfortunately, we live in a society and in a country where physical and mental health care are not readily accessible by all, and in fact are very inaccessible by many. There are so many barriers to quality health care and mental health care. And again, even though this study wasn't necessarily looking at evangelical culture, I can't help but think about my own experiences. I grew up around people who firmly believed in the mantra, prayer changes things. And I don't know the details of everyone's situation, certainly, but I do know that we prayed over illness and that was that. And when it came to things like marital problems or issues with children or God forbid mental health problems, they weren't even discussed. They were reported as anonymous prayer requests and nobody ever really talked about what was actually happening. And I can't help but think about Paul Maxwell's whole diatribe on how we shouldn't hide our trauma from God. And I think about my experience and uh, I just, 
that's a connection I cannot make. So yeah, I think this conversation is less about access to resources and other coping mechanisms, things like medical care and therapy and support groups outside of the church, and more about a willingness to seek these things out. A willingness I just never really openly saw during my time entrenched in evangelical culture. As with so many scientific studies, especially those that try to quantify lived experiences, it's not that Nicole's study is lacking. It's that the research she did and the findings she uncovered just lead to more questions. I look forward to doing more research and possibly coming back to this topic in the future, because there are so many ways we could push the questions Nicole posed even further. Now, I said we'd do it, so let's do it. Thoughts and prayers. I don't want to get too much into it because I do think it could be a conversation all on its own, but I couldn't have this episode without at least briefly touching on the whole thoughts and prayers thing. Now, personally, to be honest, I'm not too offended by this. I am someone who still does pray pretty regularly, and I recognize that it's more of a colloquialism that we just say when we hear someone's bad news. I get that. But as I've mentioned many times throughout this episode, how can offering thoughts and prayers even compare to offering actual thoughtful gestures of comfort and tangible, helpful ways of support? Don't get me wrong, prayer can be unbelievably comforting. I had surgery for the first time in my entire life when I was like 25, and I remember very vividly being prayed over by my dad while I was laying in that bed waiting to be taken into the OR. In that moment, I was so scared, but I felt so truly supported, uplifted, and protected, not necessarily by the act of praying itself, but by my dad's vulnerability in offering up his own fears, as well as just knowing how important prayer is to him in his authentic faith practice. It's not the thoughts and prayers I take issue with. It's when the culture holds prayer up as the ultimate act of support and faith, when in reality, for so many people, this action is just so hollow. Especially when you know someone is struggling and needs real help, and all you can offer is an I'll pray for you. It's superficial, and it's extremely performative. So, let me be real honest here and share a little story. Valentine's Day is a pretty polarizing holiday, right? It's a day that can, at its worst, bring out a lot of feelings of hurt and bitterness. Normally, I'm completely indifferent to Valentine's Day. My last long-term partner and I were together for seven years, and were actually engaged for some of that, and Valentine's Day still wasn't a big deal to me. It never has been. Until this year. For some reason, in the lead-up to February 14th, I felt like shit, frankly. I was sad. I felt lonely. I found myself all of a sudden nursing a heartbreak I thought I'd long since been over, And so, rather than keeping that to myself, I decided to share with a friend of mine how I was feeling and asked him how he would cope if he were me. He commiserated and gave me some really great advice, and that was that. Or so I thought. Cut to the next day, Valentine's Day, when my friend and his partner show up at my door to take me out. Instead of shakily facing the day alone, I got to spend it with two men I love more than most people on this planet. I felt loved, I felt heard, And I felt supported. Instead of hitting me with something like, God will provide a partner when it's time, I got some great advice on how to truly cope and a really lovely day out with some friends. So anyway, why do people tend to rely on religious beliefs to cope with their discomfort? And when I say discomfort, I am using that word broadly to mean essentially the bad things that happen to us or the people we care about. 
Why do we so readily offer up prayer and pat ourselves on the back as if that's the solution to all of life's problems? Why does this bother me so much? I truthfully can't answer any of those questions, not definitively anyway. I think there are so many factors that come into play, even beyond what we discussed or alluded to in this episode. Maybe the simplest answer is that we want to help, but we can't, or we don't know how, or we're too busy dealing with our own shit to do anything substantial, so we offer prayer. Or we turn to our God because even if it doesn't take much effort to do so, it's something. Like I said when I first started this episode, when things don't go our way, it's so much easier to live in the idea that it's because it isn't God's will for us, or that God has something better planned for us, than to truly cope with what went wrong. I acknowledged the comfort in this, but truthfully, I think it's a band-aid at best and blatant avoidance at worst. But I do want to close this episode by flipping my own script and making sure you all know that I think taking comfort in your religious beliefs, whatever they are, can be extremely meaningful and beautiful. I stand by all of the comments I've already made, but I want to make it clear that as long as you aren't harming yourself by ignoring your pain, or harming others by meeting their pain with empty platitudes, I think it's important to take solace in whatever you believe in. So, light a candle, say a prayer, get bangs, go skydiving, buy a motorcycle, or just call up a friend and tell them you're sad. Basically, cope in whatever way feels authentic, meaningful, and healthy for you. And if all else fails, I'll say a prayer for you. See you guys next time.